Hey everyone, welcome to Writers Talking TV, brought to you by the Writers Guild of Canada. My name is Mike Kiss, and I'm a screenwriter on shows that Google can tell you all about. Today on the podcast, we're talking about animation and the animated series Wishfart. What's a Wishfart? It's a wish with unintended results. And those results are unintended because the grantor is a teenage leprechaun whose wish-granting powers aren't quite perfected yet. Here's my conversation with creators Leanne Sawatsky, Dan Williams, and John Hazlitt, followed by an audience Q&A. Hope you enjoy it. How does this show start as your show and move forward from, from that point? Because that, to me, is the, is the best I guess part. I sh- every show starts as your show. Correct. And people take away <laughs> chunks of it or you give away chunks of it for whatever. Yeah. And then what happens when you don't do that right away? Uh, I, you know, I think, I think in our situation, what happened, uh, was, and I think, I, I think at the time, even when I talked to you last time about it, I think it was similar. I, I think that had we not partnered with Tatiana as a, distri- as our distributor, as our sales agent internationally, I'm not sure Teletune would have had the confidence in us, uh, that they did. Um, Although it was never openly discussed, ever. it was never openly discussed. But I think that yeah, it definitely helped. Is, I think Having I, someone I attached agree, yeah. to us, like yeah. there was that, that was vetting us in a way because there's think, uh, the business side of it, and I think a lot of they times just imagined that we had an organization behind us, yeah, even though we mm-hmm. actually did. But I also want to backtrack yeah. a tiny bit because um, Tatiana, who is Bajuba uh, Distribution, also we had worked out a deal with her where we were her partners. So so. Yes, like they trusted Tatiana and the three of us, and we had a lot of experience in animation, but we also had a pre-existing deal that we were going to share. Like we were going in as the four of us. So, so, I mean, that's another, I think, lucky thing that happened to us was that she's a small boutique distributor, and so um, we could be more, we could partner with her. It wasn't like we were like, you know, with E1 and... And then for development, it was basically. I mean, when we went to these companies, it was kind of it was kind of in an open spirit of like, well, we're you know, if this show goes at Teletoon, then you will be the studio. And I think we were we were kind of open to this idea of partnering and giving up a share of the of the project. But nobody wanted it. And yeah, because everyone was kind of like, well, it's not a green light yet, and it's blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So we we basically worked out a, a great deal with Slap Happy, where we gave them very little money, and we ended ended up. I mean, they met, we were going through some designs today and their stuff is like, we went through so many designs, we worked them so hard, they were so committed to it. And we ended up making a, a fully animated, like four minutes, four and a half minutes, four and a half minutes, which is a, it was, which was great. And, but the deal was like, they did it for a very little money, but if we went to Greenlight, they would get paid for their work. And if we went to Greenlight and didn't use them as a studio, they got a little bit of a, a bonus. Mm. So that was the deal, which, you know, at the time. Which worked out very well for us. I mean, they were a new studio. There's a lot of like our, our, uh, our, the hard work of putting the show together is also dotted throughout with lots of lucky things that happened yeah, to us. Because even like as this is all happening, there was several, it's, I'm not sure of the timeline, but uh, uh, Teletoon was, was the owners, they were bought by a different company. There was management changes, and then they they actually got bought totally by Chorus at one point. Right. So the network we're dealing, you know, that's the nightmare. You're in development, and your executives change, your company structure changes, and throughout this whole process, this kept coming happening, and we were just like literally like, don't don't let it fall apart. Don't let it like some executive there, come there in were, and clear the slate, please. There were probably um, at least five moments in time when we were like okay this is when we're, we've it's hit the we've hit the end of the road and we had this bottle of champagne in the fridge 
that we would refuse to open, and it was there for, I don't know, two and a half years. For a long time. I remember <laughs> uh, past development, we can come back to development, but I remember because you're talking about the champagne, we were past development waiting to find out if we were going to get a green light or not, and I actually, we had to, yeah, had to specifically send an email out and be like, so is the show greenlit or not? We weren't even when we weren't it was greenlit. Sure. We were not even sure. We're like, so are we and supposed yeah, to and be? The and the executives telling her like, oh yeah, yeah, no, it's greenlit. It's greenlit. Yeah. And then it was oh, like, oh, so it's greenlit. And then she's like, and it's it's not fully greenlit. It's kind of like a, a kind of a light green. Yeah. And we were like, what the? But actually, it's come. Up, we come up with a great policy because of all this. Leanne has this new policy: is like we don't save champagne. We celebrate as soon as we buy it. Because we know good things are going to happen. And if bad things happen, then we're going to have to drink the champagne anyway. So, Yeah, well, buying the champagne is kind of like doing the work. I mean, you do it because what if it works out, really? Is like, yeah, exactly. you're prepared anyway. I mean, you talk about luck and everything, but um, that's every. there's so much of every show that's completely out of the creator's hands, out of everyone's hands. It just everything lines up, you know, or it doesn't. But uh, being prepared and also having the, really, the, the wherewithal and... Uh, and the determination to just kind of do it like it. And I know that I, I keep coming back to this, but it really is the the best part of this story for me because it we're, we're all used to, uh, you know, we, we learned a lot of things about financing yeah, yeah. that we don't want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, uh, but, but yeah. it's necessary, but, though. It's uh, a, so what do you what did you have to in order to fill in those gaps in order to be um, aside from your relationship with the distributor who, um, you know, you explained what she uh, brought to the table? What did you have to learn? What did you have to do in order to, um, you know, alleviate anyone's possible consternation? Like, what else did you have to bring to the table that you hadn't before, if anything? Uh, I think that uh, sort of what happened uh, was, I, it was more like we proved ourselves as we were going along. I think what happened was we got the green light, and uh, at some point someone said, well, we need a producer on the show. And I think it was Tatiana, actually, was like, uh, you guys have a lot of experience, right? Can you produce a show? So we're like, it's... Uh, I mean, I pr I've produced a couple of, uh, a bunch yeah, of, a handful of feature films. Mm -hmm. So I have that experience. I'm not like a real technical producer, but I have done it a bunch of times. So that gave me the confidence to basically be like, well, this isn't rocket science. No, well, this we, gets done all the time. We, so that's like, the way I didn't know the specifics yeah. of it. Well, that's it. I mean, I think the fact that we had the fortune of being three people is really an important piece of the story because between the three of us, we felt we all had something to bring to it. And even though we knew we would have to learn a lot and we did, it wasn't, I mean, it was scary. It was always scary. There was a lot of anxiety, but it was, um, it was all stuff we knew, like we knew how animated series worked. We'd been show running, we'd been working in this field for like 15 years. So we, we felt comfortable in a general sense, and yeah. we knew we were really comfortable with the show we wanted to make, and you had your experience, so we just decided, well, um, you know, this is an opportunity. I hope we don't mess it up, but we're going to give it yeah, everything. Yeah, I think it's right. You can't discount that dynamic between the three of us of kind of yeah. like having kind of each other's back. It's like none of us are in this alone. We all kind of like we're scared, and we look at each other. It's like, well, I guess if we're going to go down, we're going to go down together. Yeah, and there's that, and also... Like I at one point we had to we had to pay um, the financing had kicked in and we had to pay the writers. the writers room already so so and Jerome is here somewhere yeah Who wrote and Seal he Baby wrote thingy. that he wrote Baby Seal thingy episode and he's great and we were we had a writers room and we didn't have my, uh, money yet so we paid from our own well we're like well we're the producers so we paid from our own money yeah. like we're waiting for money to come from the bank and it's like it, financing tv shows is complicated because well, we've and been on the other of end of not getting paid i was just gonna i was just gonna yeah. grouse about that as loudly as possible that uh 
oftentimes writers provide that kind of bridge financing. You know, you're working for a company, <laughs> yeah. and it, that's what it is. You know, they, they, oh, it hasn't worked out yet, or maybe it has, but it's not working out for you. So keep yeah. writing. Keep writing exactly. because you love it. So <laughs> keep you doing. You just love what you're doing. You don't but, need to get paid. Yes, it, but that's that's wonderful though that you. It was didn't also like I think we uh, a thing about we wanted to kind of. Uh, we wanted to appear to be like super fresh, professional. So, so like, it's like we were wearing business suits. We were like hunched in our office. Like and you got twenty thousand like, bucks each to got, like throw right. in for this week. Okay, yeah, like we uh, didn't have enough money to pay for the whole thing, but we paid. for But well, we did realize. So going back to your original question, though, what we did realize I think or uh, what helped bolster us was having met Tatiana and partnering with her. We knew that you can hire, although we were partnered with her, you can hire the people to do the things you don't know how to do. Yes. And so as opposed to feeling you need to go to a big company and who can take care of everything for you and they have the distribution and they have the uh, design, they have everybody, you basically, you're cobbling this thing together and you don't know how to do something, you hire them. So we so have a we business, have affairs, business affairs person. Affairs and, we and, have and we have an lawyer, accountant. Lawyer. And a lawyer, and yeah. which you wouldn't do anyways. Just normally you'd let the production company that you were working with do it. Uh, yeah. In our case, we but just those, went those and producers, got those They don't do the tax directly. credit calculations. They yes. get an accountant to do that. Exactly. So. And, and if you can find a smart person. If you have money, that smart person will work for that money. Exactly. That's a, yeah. Exactly. That's the uh, thing. Figuring that out expert. for the first time. So. Like, you know how to do this. I'm, I'm, I don't. Here's, yeah. here's money. And then things get done that are better than I can yeah, do yeah. them. Yeah. And early on, realizing on these phone calls, because suddenly we're producing this TV show on phone calls with like banks and like who've, uh, CMF, who've done these things like, over and over and over again, they don't know it. They don't know what they're doing either. Like we're all kind of figuring it out. Every prod you had said early on, because he's produced movies before, that every project is different and unique. And so it doesn't. I mean, the experience is very important, but there's experts there to help you, and every experience is unique. So you're all kind of figuring it out together. And I, anyways, uh, from my personal experience uh, in in the feature world, there's a lot of like a, a dragging of the feet in the feature world. It's not a very cooperative business. But uh, for some reason, uh, but I found the it, solid hugs and TV yeah. all the time. But in animation, in kids actually in, in kids animation, I found that everybody really pulls together. And like the broadcasters want your show. Everybody, like, even the people at the bank are like, like everyone really kind of is nice and cooperative. Nobody is like there to kind of like, like uh, kind of derail the project. And and sometimes people don't know what they're doing and blah blah blah. But then you we have to be on top of things. But I thought uh, it was actually generally a very cooperative experience, and uh, you know, so. So how did how else did uh, you mention just with uh, treating your writers a little uh, differently because you'd been through that as well? Like, how did uh, the rest of the process change from what you might have done in the past on other shows because you were um, you were the, the client essentially for your producers, and also uh, the the person that the people that. Um, your broadcaster was uh, speaking to directly. Uh, I mean, I, I can just set this up a little because I'm I was new to it, and I, and Dan and Leanna talked about how the shows they had worked on before had worked, and I was kind of a bit shocked about the compartmentalization of the animation business. And as we went through, uh, and I learned this, I really saw it in, on our show, even though it was my first experience. Is like being the creators from beginning to end and like linking everyone together just i i couldn't imagine doing it in a different way and that's why i was kind of shocked that certain shows are they segregate the writers from the animators and the animators from the post-production everything is segregated so i think that the the, the short answer is i and we could go into some detail it's like this the continuum and the through line just makes everything so much better it's not a control thing it's just like having a singular yeah, I mean, you get to keep yeah. on crafting and shepherding the story from the beginning to the very last mix, and that's really how it should be if you want to maintain the creative vision. So we 
we just felt incredibly lucky. Um, we were learning a lot and it was a crazy pace, but we got to see every story through. We didn't just submit a script and then wonder what was going to happen. We got to see every single thing happen and weigh in. And like you said, well, it wasn't really what? about being, it wasn't really, it's not about ego and it's not about that we know best. It's just that we were the ones that came up with that story with our writers. And so we should, you know, we felt very lucky to be able to see them through like right down to well, we knew what the start. stories were about and we were able to to make sure that every episode was what that story was supposed to be about from beginning to end uh and we never had to explain to someone we never had to hand it off to someone and say do your best please and that's the main problem with the com compartmentalization is that um everyone along the the process is talented there's talented people from the designers to animators storyboarders everyone but then if there's no cohesive vision, everyone's kind of doing their own thing at a different stage. And it's kind of shocking how a story can start off one way in the writer's mind. And then by the end, it's some, it's just there's it doesn't really even make sense. Sometimes it's just there's there's new jokes and there's like things that are happening that aren't central to the story. And we just really felt strongly that this was a storyteller's show. Yeah. And you get the best out of everyone if they kind of like if they kind of know if they know where they're supposed to be headed. Yeah, it's a, it's a situation where uh, when everything is compartmentalized, everyone has their own job, their own specific link in the chain that they have to make. When you're there making the entire chain yourself, it can. How does that change your? Now that you've done that, going uh, from let's say as uh, storytellers, showrunners, uh, producers, writers, um, from where you were before, probably on your previous job, maybe all your previous jobs, where there's someone in. Um, the middle who and you know there's part of being in this position as a writer is understanding what a company wants and what their role is in making a show and you can't make it at least you know well I guess you can without them but to understand the relationship of how that works now that you've gone the other way on it how has that or has it changed your perspective on um, on uh, how things worked before and how they work in general what did not having that uh, not having to impress someone who's not you or ultimately the person buying the show mm -hmm. how does that how has that changed your outlook uh well i think that i think that the industry is changing a little bit uh as well as what happened to, our, to us like i think that the whole the rise of showrunners uh overseeing an entire series is is uh, different now so i think that what happened on our show is just happening generally more than it was before so uh uh, I guess uh, I'm happy about that. <laughs> Is that oh, yeah. what I want to like say? I said yes. I couldn't imagine doing it a different way. Yeah. And and my idea for like continuing for for forward is getting even even more involvement. Like there's there's still a few pieces of the chain that aren't quite linked up enough. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think we I mean, I, don't, I think what happened to us with Wishfart is amazing and we want to make it happen again. But also every deal and every situation and every show is different. So even if we go forward and work on something where, you know, chances are we're not going to own it or we don't or maybe we're not even producing it. But I still feel that all the things that we learned and saw, um, I would feel very strongly that if I was, you know, show running something, I would want to be privy to like all of those, you know, I, I feel like we could all work together to make that pipeline work better. I think that animators and writers should be talking to each other more and that storyboarders and writers should be meeting up. And I feel like that dialogue would be amazing. And I, I think if you don't have the power of being like a producer on the show, you can't go in and demand that. And there are some challenges like the writing is at the beginning. And so 
often the writer is kind of long gone and has been paid their paltry sum and they're gone and you can understand they might not want to come back for a meeting like six months later but I just I still feel that there's a way that if we all talked about it we could figure out how to make that process yeah well less. I think what I was gonna say about the rise of the showrunner runner is uh, I think that although in our situation the way it happened uh, because we were we uh, were in control of the show financially that uh, we were de facto in charge of what was going on but I think that there's something to be said for just going on a show and claiming that responsibility and just being like I'm going to be controlling this no matter uh, no matter what happens no matter who's the producer no matter where the money comes from I'm going to be the vision on the show and I'm going to like put your foot down early and I think that could work I think people want to know there's someone who's watching out for what's happening I mean, because, yeah. because actually like the, 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 the that's the dark side of it is like it's an enormous amount of work and you have to be like in the show like Wishfart is like it's not like we can do other things. And even even though the show's been done for a while, it's like literally every day we do Wishfart things and it's like in the promotion, the show, every like so um it's you know almost in some ways it's like the idea of just working on a show where you uh, just you're just the showrunner and you just come in and run the room and then you kinda go home. Actually that sounds pretty nice too. But uh uh but it's it's I th and I think that's why the industry kind of like uh doesn't promote that kind of like uh Thing so much because it actually co it, it costs a lot more time for certain people. To, like, do you think make it I work. do think yeah. it is changing? Like you yeah. said, there are they. You know, you used to when when we went from being called you know story editors to showrunners, then uh, it wasn't always necessarily that you got paid more money or even had more power. But now you see that more and more showrunners are being uh, pre like they're present for more of the show. They'll go to the voice records, you know, and, and I don't know that. They're, they're making that much more money, but I think that most people want to do a really good job on whatever they're doing. So if you invite them to have more input, you know, um, yes, it would be nice to get higher rates, but I think that people will continually want to see their stories through. How is this, uh, how did your, um, did, did your role on this show and the different way that you produced it impact the way that you look at writers as writers yourselves? Did anything change uh, throughout the process? Hmm, that's a good question. Very good question. I really value them a lot. Need. Yeah. <laughs> Writers are great. Um, I think. I was going to say, can I we pay them less? Can we pay them less? They're very expensive. No, they're really figured out the answer to, to be yes honest, to that. one of the what, that's not really the topic, but yeah. but we have realized. Surprise, surprise, writers should get paid more. And we, you know, we we believe in that. But um, money aside, I think that, um, well, I think like we, it would be great if we could keep having writers' rooms mm -hmm. instead of just these two-day, three-day summit where we all, you know, kind of cram in, breaking as many stories as possible and then going off on our own. I think uh, one of the amazing, like it's kind of like we are a permanent writers' room all the time together. And I see the benefit of being able to constantly uh, you know, talk about the show and work things out together. And so, and we had a great team of writers on Wishfart, and I just wish we could have had them more. Um, sometimes the budget doesn't permit that, but um, I guess I I guess I feel that if there are ways to get the writers of shows more involved in the shows, that mm -hmm. would be even better because I see the benefit of of then like seeing how the story progresses as it goes down the pipeline. So I think all writers should have that experience. Did the fact that your writers um do you think that uh your um your broadcaster viewed the show any differently how do, how do you think it uh, it affected them dealing directly with with you as creators and writers as well as opposed to uh 
through someone else? Uh, well, I think uh, largely because we have had a long relationship with Athena, who was at Teletoon before. I think that uh, it was a it was a pretty good experience we had. She really trusted us to to deliver the show that we promised we were going to del- deliver. Um, a lot of times in cartoons, I've noticed like people try to sneak in things, like things that are inappropriate or whatever, to see if they can get them past the network. But she gave us such trust early on that it was like we would only be like trying to trick ourselves. It was like we had uh, really like it was a tremendous experience in doing that. It was uh, other than knives and and yeah. torches. Mm-hmm. I think that broadcasters probably really like. You know, it's it's a pretty intimate relationship. You're talking to the person all the time, and they're there. You're like you're crafting this thing together, and and you know, Athena always had great notes and really understood Wishfart. But uh, I think they they probably really like to work d- closely and directly with writers because yeah. it's the relationship is different, and you can really like talk about the story. And and um, I don't know. I always got the feeling that it was quite gratifying for them and for like then we had been actually I remember her saying early on that she really liked that and she wished that that happened on more shows was having the writers involved uh, directly with them and throughout the length of the process. Do you remember when you used to not when we like it was so long ago when you the writers would never ever talk to anyone at the network ever. Never. No, you like, never because there, there were no writers' rooms and there were no. So at least now, like sometimes a network executive will come in for one of the days of the summits and like you know talk to the writers. But it used to be like we would just we, there would be a story editor and they would everything would be filtered through the story editor and we wouldn't even know who the network executives were and then we'd just give our script in and we would never hear. I think there was a time when we were at Canada was producing a lot of filler for for other things and we're now entering this age of content where con- the actual content is really important and, and and so we are seeing things evolve in a very positive way, I think, in the, for that. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. We're going to open it up for questions in a, in a couple of minutes, but I had, uh, was wondering if there was anything that stood out about um, about the the decision or the, the process for each of you of um, what would you advise people to, uh, what's the, the single kind of um, most important thing for people to think of when they, if they might have the idea, I'm just going to do this. Because uh, you were talking about trust, Dan, and I, uh, I, I, that takes time to build as well. Like when you're talking to a network and somebody has to know, okay, these people will actually deliver the show. Um, that's an important thing. But what, was there anything about either what you learned, what you experienced, what uh, what you know differently now that you would um, you'd advise somebody to pay extra attention to if they were going to try to do this? I think in my and this is not just in this experience, but it's in my kind of full experience as doing this for a few years. Um, and it's probably, I think, the hardest thing for a creator writer to do. It's like every single project you develop, you have to develop with, with the passion that you're going to get this made. Mm. And But you have to do that all the time with, with all these different projects. And you know they're not going to get made. Yeah. But you have to act. Well, you have to act and you have to be mentally in that space that I'm so passionate about this. I want to get this made. And I think those projects, when you pitch them, the development materials, the scripts that you write for them, those are the ones that are going to catch people's attention because you really, it feels like you really mean it. And it's, it's, if you do that for a number of years, it does take a, it, it, it takes a certain kind of constitution to keep doing that until something breaks through. So it's either you're dumb and you keep doing it Mm -hmm. or you're really passionate. So be dumb, be passionate. passionate. (laughs) I was just going to say that one thing, because I remember um, being a younger writer and being intimidated by like network executives and things like meetings and you know pretty much anything. But um, I think that if 
if you have a project you're passionate about and you're you even if it's not fully developed i think if you have like a lot of passion for something and you have a really good idea or you even have like the seed of a relationship with somebody that you shouldn't be afraid to like put yourself out there a little bit because i think you know development executives are people and they also really want to do cool things and meet people with good ideas and and who are passionate so it's all a process i mean it takes a long time to build relationships and it took us a long time but so I'm not saying there are shortcuts, but I, I do feel that you could approach it as like, that you really just want to share it with someone and like talk to them and like just, you know, schedule a meeting and just, you know, be honest. Like you don't have to have everything completely finished. Yep. You could just be running something by someone. Like I think our soft pitching was pretty good in that. Yeah, one. it was a great idea. I'll piggyback on yours. Yeah, the experience was that uh, that keep talking to people. about. I'm totally, we're, we're not shy about talking about our ideas to people. We don't keep them uh close to ourselves till they're ready to go out. We like soft pitch them. We talk to people. You never know who's going to get excited and you never know who they know, even if they don't know anyone. And be reactive to things. And that's something I've learned from Darren and Leanne because I'm, I'm a little bit lazy. So when we have a meeting, like we're, we're in the car back or like we're, we're on the way back to, from the meeting and like uh, Dan and Leanne are immediately, okay, well uh, we should change this or change that. And like, what? We're constantly reworking what? both our pitches and our, like, and our scripts. That, right we're big but, uh, rewriters. I've learned that that is a good thing. Like, you know, Constantly be working at it. It's almost the same thing as being constantly up about it. It's like constantly be working on it, constantly. You um, have to change your core idea. And then to what Leanne was saying, that's true it. that all these people are people. They're like, as you realize, as you're talking to like, uh, as you're talking to bankers and financial people who like, uh, who totally as a writer, I would never talk to them. But suddenly being in a position where you are talking to people you'd never talk to, you realize, oh yeah, they are people. They just want to go on vacation like everybody else. They're like, they, they're, they're, and you never know what's going to get them excited. So that's why it's important not to be, I mean, it's hard not to be shy. I'm very shy. Uh, but um, it's important to be uh, confident about the ideas that you have and be willing to struggle through conversations about them. Hmm. Speaking of struggling through conversations, uh, we're going to open it up to uh, to some questions here. Maybe uh, we've got a couple of microphones. Uh, they'll rove this around. Very professional has setup. One. And I'll try to uh, try to find somebody right there, right, more there, right in the middle, middle of the room. Can you just tell us a little bit about the writing process? How much control did you set at the beginning? You you said you had a summit, and then you broke all the stories there. People went off and wrote one at a time, how much control did you guys have? How much did you write? How many writers did you have? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. We had six, right? Do we have six writers? We had six, Five. we had two teams um, and then we had two other and then one individual writer. Writers. And then, yeah, so basically we had um, six writers writing and we, um, you know, when we assembled this team, we had, I think we had two or three, did we have two or three summits? We did three summits. So we had three, so, so we had three uh, yeah. week long summits. Like we had one in the beginning, and we all kind of got to know the show together and and brainstormed ideas. I think we and could try to come up with like twelve to thirteen premises per summit, per summit. Mm -hmm. and then we would assign them to the writers based on basically kind of like who kind of had the the kernel of the idea originally. We tried to kind of like yeah. keep that. I'm like an Excel. I I'm an, I use Excel. And uh, and uh, so I had built the writer's schedule, and what we did, decided to do, uh, sometimes you'll work on a show and everyone pitches at once, and the ones that get approved, you, uh, a bunch of people go off and write. Uh, what we decided to do on this show was we would try to get, also to make, we knew there was only one network executive giving all the notes, and we didn't want to overload her, so uh, we were, our goal was to get two stories approved a week, and we assigned them on a piggyback basis, so no writer, no, the two, 
uh, one writer wouldn't be working on two like drafts at the same time. They would always have like a week off between things. Also, writers are very busy, so they're working on other stuff as well. So you don't want to overwork them. Yeah, but in um, general, we did. We had a team that we we kept the same team of writers the entire yeah for the whole the series, whole season yeah. and. Um, we um yeah we broke stories together and then they went off and wrote them themselves and then we like we did do um we did we acted as story editors on the show as well so we did do the editing ourselves uh, we split it up between the three of us and i mean the th the, the the truth is like that's why writers' rooms are great because the better the writer knows the show, the 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 more you're all in it together. But the story editor is always there to like keep the um, the scripts all in the same uh, tone and and really fine fine tune them. So it was we had we had total control, but we don't like to think of it that way. We we did it all together, and then you know each script had its own challenges. I and would we say. also have our own dynamic. I think sometimes we we don't. You know, we don't always think the same way about things. They gang up on me. Fight a lot, the yeah. three of us. Women. And, uh, and I think that we basically we solve our arguments by working on the scripts. Yes. And the end of the script is the end of the argument. So <laughs> That's right. it is. Our and then we own, don't talk to each other. It is our own process anymore. So uh, it's particular. Yeah. <laughs> Did that, uh, uh, that answer your uh, great? Uh, who else we got? Uh, uh, let's let's switch up the size of the room first, and then we can uh, we'll take uh, Corey there. I just wanted to clarify. So when you you said you pitched Teletoon first, and then just it went dormant until you got a distributor to sign on board with uh, it, or it was it was that was really a matter of just the timing. Like we we pitched Teletoon, um, and uh, Sylvie, who was there then. I really loved it, but things at Teletoon take a long time for everything to be reviewed, so there was a long waiting period, and in the interim, Athena came back from maternity leave, and we had also paired up with this with, with uh, distributor, so um, it wasn't so clean cut, like then, because we had a dis distributor, then they looked at the material, it just... It, well, it, I was just I wondering mean, how... Uh, at what point did you go to the distributor? Or were you well, okay, so pitching during the, dorm, during the dormant part, goes, yeah. part of the like the going back to Teletoon, I think it was just sort of happened because uh, we had got the distributor and she, uh, you know, we start working with someone, we filled her in on everyone we'd pitched, uh, and it was basically everybody in the country she that we knew. So she was like, well, "Who am I going to go to?" So her plan was to go and pitch like uh, other companies, like international. She's an international sales agent. Uh, and so uh, it was kind of a surprise when Teletoon kind of came back. But, and was, but like, it, it was a specific strategy that you actually said, okay, let's just go to a distributor now. Um, now it was just works. kind of like it was a friend of mine had basically said, oh, you should okay. basically uh, partner up with this person because it might give you a little more legitimacy. I think it is a good strategy. It's a great strategy. I think it is a good strategy. And I would do it again. I think if you could find someone. But it just seems like the Canadian thing was like, oh, somebody else likes it? Okay, okay, we'll give you some money now. I'd like to say every single thing we did was extreme strategic and deliberate it was, it was not it but we would do that again i think that's yeah. a great strategy for a creator with uh, something but there was some recognition it. at teletoon once an international distributor came yeah. on board and this like, and this distributor also uh, uh knows uh new athena very well oh okay like so she knows everybody and so there was also that she had a when she called athena i don't know what they said but you know they're they, they're kind of buddies i think in general you need someone to champion you it's not it's like no one wants to be the only person to take a risk on something. Yeah. So the more people you can convince yeah, without having to give away too much. Yeah, the better. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, it seems um, just to add to that, if uh, if I can, there's a lot of it, it's all it's in all of our natures to to talk about the the things that went so fortunately and so right for us um, as you know as balls got rolling because that always has to happen. But uh, but these are all. Um, Really important steps that uh, that you did take, even though they might have been, you know, there might have been some sort of serendipity. And, it, and a lot of this is because uh, it's, um, and it does feel like that a lot of the time. Like if if someone else is willing, someone else likes it, uh, fine, I'm willing to like it too. But it, it more often comes down to if someone else is willing to take a risk, then I won't be the only one risking it. And if someone, if there's at least I can imagine a way for me to make my money back, and someone else is willing to get in on this risk as well, then it's like everyone's everyone's in it together. Everyone's in it kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of together. And if you can line those things up and so that they all fall over at the same time, that, that kind of everyone kind of likes that. It's the same way, you know, that, that someone's more likely to hire you if someone else has. Like, oh, somebody else is willing to do this thing. They didn't explode. So now I'm mm-hmm. I'm willing to get uh, to right, get in on to, that as well. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Over here, was there? Hey Corey. Assembling the writing team. How did that work? Was it like network giving you writers or did you pick your own or we we picked all our own writers and it was kind of a combo. We had we um we knew we wanted to try some new people out, so we asked around our other showrunner friends, you know, who who do you like, who have you been working with? That's how Jerome and Josh came to us through um yeah, and then separately, Steph Callender, not from Simon, but yeah. So we asked all the people that we trusted that had that we knew well enough to ask, like, hey, do you have writers you'd recommend? And then we also had our personal, like, people that we'd worked with before that we really liked. Um, yeah, it was a combo. It was like we we consciously we wanted to have fifty percent female voice in the room, and we wanted to have some writers we'd never worked with, and then we wanted to have some writers we had worked with, so we knew we could like rely on them. To and just, we wanted also to get, you know, put together a group of people who would hopefully get along. And it was actually it was a very nice uh, writers' room. Everyone was very kind to each other, which was nice. I had no idea who to hire, so I was like, "You guys hire <laughs> you who you want. I trust you guys." Right, <laughs> right there. When you guys were developing the secondary characters, did you first work on world building and then let that inform the types of people that would be living in the world, or was it kind of like the other way around? That's a really good question. I think it's pretty organic. Like we we knew from the beginning it was going to be this um, the city, generic kind of city that's like ours, except that it's made up of these mythological creatures that have just evolved into normal kind of city dwellers. Um, so we always felt that we had a huge, like huge opportunity to have all kinds of great characters and we always, and we wanted it to be a bustling kind of city. We, I guess we built the, the secondary characters that were built in from the, pretty much from the beginning were Fireball Cat because we kind of wanted a kind of a mentor kind of guy who would run a kind of a noodle cafe and then, uh, Suni who wasn't. She wasn't in either of the episodes, so assuming the uh, skateboarding mermaid, who's kind of like a, a love interest for Dez, but also kind of like she runs a comic book shop. She's kind of cool. So I think those were the... the did the they old... come from... Uh, did the world come first, though, or did they come first? Yeah, well, it, kind of at the same time, question, I guess. It's a question, but I do think it, it's very just together. And then, we just, added, and then we just added them as the scripts came in. We, I was we just looking after old, at our, all our old material today. Uh, at a, in our original pitch, we described the world as a mix of Dr. Dr. Seuss, Seuss and, and Miyazaki. And Miyazaki. Yeah. 
I think she said in the Bible, it's if Dr. Seuss and Miyazaki had a baby. Yes, I think that's what he said. For a second, I thought you. I don't know what that means. The show's not really like that. I always think that he's not really. That was confused. No, he's not. Did you ever have the? As you're looking at your looking at your show and looking at the world, did you ever have that? Did some of your characters get born out of the idea of we need we need someone who does this? We need a character who fulfills a certain role, and then you. You fill them out. Like a seal baby, you mean? Yeah. yeah. I'm trying real hard not to ask about that one, but uh. um, I, yeah, I think so. I think. I think a lot of characters, your secondary characters, after you've built your world, yeah. are born out of necessity. Yeah. Uh, I know when we first devised the show Fireball Cat, I was kind of uh, concerned about because I've worked on a lot of shows, and the mentor character gets. Uh, they seem important when you're developing the show, but then when you start working on it, you kind of want the, especially kids TV, you want the kids to figure stuff out themselves. Um, so I was concerned that he would get lost. So we really, well, he ends up sort of in the, by, he ends up doing a lot of like being the owner of the noodle shop in the yeah. end and, and, and also, kind of warning them about things, but not really helping them. advice, it's often like oh, so weird and cryptic and kind of goes in and, yeah. Or convenient for writers. But I, but, but I like Mike's question. I'm just wondering, like, how did we come up with Uncle Phil? Was that out of, like, so there's this character who's uh, Dez's uncle, and he's, like, a really grumpy, grumpy leprechaun who lives in a storage uh, storage Locker, facility. Storage and he kind of has, like, a green leisure suit on, and he's just really, he's, uh, but we use him a lot. He's great. He's really grumpy. So. That sounds awesome. He's a fantastic not- character. And I don't, I'm trying to remember, was he born out of, like, um, a story idea. Well, like Fanula was born under the idea of having a mentor, uh, not a mentor, an enemy who would mm-hmm. like come up against Des. And we said yeah, right away, we were like the anti Des, we wanted her to be like a peer, like someone from his own age group yeah. and a girl to make him feel more uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm not sure where Uncle Phil came from, but he definitely he plays this role of kind of showing what more traditional leprechaun and what happens to you if you're like, if you hold on to those grumpy values. Mm-hmm. But no idea when he came. Oh, hello. Uh, hi. I'm still trying to think of how to phrase this question, but um, I guess I've been on shows where the creators do get a little bit um, lost, or, or maybe not lost, but they are not as present on the show. And um, do you think that becoming producers really helped you also maintain some creative control or or and and what would you suggest to somebody who like like let's say i pitch a show tomorrow and they say okay well you don't have anything on your resume so we want your idea but you're not really going to be a part of it you'll have your name on it and whatever but yeah how did you negotiate this yeah that's an excellent question and i think it's like the title creator can mean so many things it can mean that somebody bought your idea and then never wants to even talk to you again or so it it, that really depends on the level of experience you're going in with and then uh the deal that you can manage to make but um but i totally agree with you it can it can happen that the creator cannot be part of it and I, i i don't know how to fix that but i think that um even if you feel you don't have a lot of negotiating power, if you're it's your first show or whatever, I would still insist on like fight for at yeah. least if you don't have control, at least the to be present at these things or to be able. Sometimes you can um, have it in your contract that you are. I don't know what the word is, but like you can see all of this stuff and you can comment, but they don't know to yeah. listen to you. The vague term is meaningful least, involvement. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, but if you at least can be contract like in your contract that you yeah. get to see everything and comment on it then i think that that's a good chance that someone will hear your voice still and may not may not be i think perfect, that they, yeah i think the creator's uh voice is becoming more important to a lot of people the types of shows that are uh being developed now and being produced uh, tend to have a 
origin and something meaningful meaningful to the creator. So I think that's a good time for that. Um, I also think that if you went and pitched someone uh, your show idea and they were interested in it, if you didn't have an agent, you could call an agent up and say, listen, so-and-so is really interested in my idea. I need you to negotiate this for me because I've never done it before. And sometimes you can even get an agent or a lawyer to do that for you without even taking you on as a client. Like you can call an agency that you've heard of that a good agent and you can say like, I need someone to like, you know, do this agreement for me. Like there, you need people on your side to help you who know how to get. And now you can say, Hey, those guys on wish had control and it's an amazing show and it's a big, huge international (laughs) hit. So I should be in control of my show. And then once you have that, once you have that little bit of confidence about it, I actually think that like we were saying before, people actually want to know that you, there's someone who has a vision for the thing. So, uh, the more confidence you get, it begets more confidence from other people to uh, to listen to your ideas and to follow through with them. Yeah, I, I agree totally. That it's really the how much you how much you love something and how excited you are about it that really resonates most. Not necessarily a um, um, a rigidity or uh, saying no all the time. And I've I've been in. I'm assuming we all have the situation often with uh, working with the creator who doesn't have anything on the resume but has this great idea for a show, um, it's very rare that uh, that the person who um, is brought on to work with a creator doesn't listen. Uh, I've, I've, never, I've never been in that situation. Uh, oftentimes it's more like uh, you're the one who had the idea that someone loved, and then they may hire someone to fill in the parts that you just don't know how to do. And then it, that really can result in a... Uh, in a partnership, the only time that that can be a um, an obstacle is when a creator just won't let the the train go forward. Uh, so if you're not if you're not that type of uh, creator, sure we've all worked with uh, collaboration is very important. It's yeah, extremely it. it's extremely important. So, uh, but still, talk about your idea and and how much you uh, you love it, and if someone loves that, they will find generally a way to work with you. That's that's much more important because they're not only thinking about this thing you've come up with, but they're thinking about the mind that you have that came up with this idea. Yeah, what what, what is a value that money yes. is valuable. So. And also, yeah, but if they're willing to offer you a lot of money, take the money and get the hell out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a lot of work over yeah. a long period of time. You're, you're, you're smart. You'll come up with something else. Did we have? Uh, I think there was. Uh, yes, sir, right there. Uh, hi, it's a great show, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. Moving forward now that you guys have made animation, um, uh, how you talked a bit about live action, and you were—I don't think anything went. John, you joined uh, Leanne and Dan, had success. Are you guys like animation guys now, or can you do live action now? What's going to be the response? How are you guys going to deal with that? I think we we still have some live action ideas, and right now because we're kind of like you know the show's coming out, and our our agents are basically saying you guys should be pitching animation because yeah, that's, people are looking at us yeah. as animators, animation no. makers right now. But we definitely have some live action you know, kind of back pocket ideas and stuff like that. But it's like right now it's it doesn't seem to be practically the smart thing to concentrate on at the moment. So, but uh, yeah, just because just practicality really. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you if you you run a steakhouse and somebody shows up and you want to surprise them with this great soup that you're making that day, yeah, it might not work out. <laughs> uh, 
somebody, uh, okay, uh, then, then, yeah, I guess we're, we're clustered in this corner here, so we got them lined up. I got you. Go for it. All right, so you were speaking about working um, through this process over a period of seven years and then honing it for about a period of one year. Um, how do you first, how do you find people that you can reasonably stay sane with for this period of time? And then once you've had that team, how do you maintain it and divvy up the, the creative responsibilities? No You're one said anything about saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, again, it's a great question, and I think that it, only, it can only do that if from the beginning you're really clear. Um, I mean, I think in a way because uh, I well, Dan and I had already been working together, so we knew we could do it, and and John is a very reasonable fellow, and we we just we decided, you know. <laughs> We just decided that we needed to get this thing done and we wanted to do it. So anytime we hit a stumbling block, we would literally kind of like what you were saying, we would just work through it and we knew you have to kind of put your ego aside and we need to work through these problems and get to a solution because we care about this enough. And so we did that ourselves over and over. But how do we, how did we, Well, you know? I was going to say early on, uh, two different scenarios, uh, two, I have two, two different memories. One was when we were first getting started, someone said uh, they're probably going to want like one uh, sort of point person to talk to at like the studio and stuff so that they're not three voices all the time. And that never happened. It was always the three of us, but it was always seemed to be fine. Um, and then also in, even in our own writing uh, organization, um, in our schedules, we said originally we were going to divide up scripts and we were each going to be in charge of a certain number of them. And that also never happened. We just did everything together. We all together. have too many opinions about everything. So then we were like, okay, let's just work through this one thing at a time. Professionally, we do try to speak with one voice. Yeah, professionally, we speak with one voice. <laughs> but we're all talking at the same time. But we sometimes have a lot of meetings together <laughs> yeah. to figure out what that voice is. Yeah. But it, it, it's tough. It's tough to find people. But I, I think if you're just honest and you really try to be collaborative and not let your ego get in the way too much you can find ways to work with people if you have a greater you know purpose i think we'd kind of work together enough even though it wasn't kind of like on a show we've done enough writing together and pitching stuff that by the time the show hit because to say that it was a lot of stress is an understatement i mean right now it sounds all like you know why didn't awards and like you know success but it was like there were times during the production that were incredibly stressful. And I think that we kind of uh, become friends over the years and we'd work together enough that it was kind of like, uh, that, you know, we, we knew that that would pass and, yeah, yeah, no, and better times would be yeah. ahead. And we care about each other. We that's care about each other thing. and there's like no big egos yeah. either. So yeah, I think that's, that, that's really important too. It's, it's about finding people who you're comfortable losing your mind with yeah. as opposed to oh, yeah. people are going to keep you sane and, and to avoid the people who do that one thing that, drives crazy. you crazy yeah. rather than yeah, well, you know these guys do a number of different things that drive me crazy so that's fine <laughs> not one thing but we overpower him <laughs> so. emotional resilience is very important as well we've been gaslighting him for seven years so. <laughs> <laughs> all right i got the uh with the glasses there and then you sir if you still uh cool uh you mentioned something about uh I, you said it jokingly but like international success and all that um how much of an eye did you have towards international distribution considering that uh canada has such a such a powerhouse on that uh, front, generally, especially in the animation world. Uh, when we created the show, I guess we thought about it a bit. I would say that early on, I realized that leprechauns don't really exist in a lot of countries in the world, so I never brought that up with anyone who was talking about business. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I thought about it, but I also 
decided to ignore it. Yeah, like our international distributor, like she gave us some kind of notes on things, but it was mostly like things like Akiko should be cute because girls are going to want to like it. It was more like just general notes on like make the show likable and make it well. And then internationally, we'll we'll try to sell it. And that's I think that's what Canada like the animation industry is all about selling it all over. So I think we'd been used to um, even working with other, you know, companies in, in, in other parts of the world. So we always, of course, knew that we would want to sell it internationally. Um, but yeah, we did. That is true. We did kind of underplay the leprechaun thing. But he's, you know, I mean, he's a non-traditional fairy kind of character. Did you find any, uh, are there regional versions of leprechauns like uh, is it is there well there's no word for it in french yeah like it, leprechaun is a falfadet which is like it's more like a like a gnome or a, yeah, a, mm-hmm. uh, so like most uh, languages other than english don't have a leprechaun right. so um you have to understand it, then it's just a magical troll that's kind of like i mean it was part of our it was part of a strategy it was more like i, I it was more like a a personal thing about the show would like not make it like that leprechauns are associated with the Irish and all that kind of stuff. And I think there was maybe a tendency to be like, Oh, we'll write this stuff up. It's not, but it's not about that. Like we kind of shy other than that very Irish, Irishy episode. Uh, we didn't, we stayed away from that. Cause yeah, like you say, it's like no one else gets those jokes except in the, yeah, even Anglo, in that episode, Anglo we decided world. to make up a lot of the stuff like potato water for breakfast because we sort of felt we didn't want to be kind of like backhandedly stereotyping, Irish and leprechaun people, and uh, you just want to use the front of the hand, just yeah, the front, front of the hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we actually decided to make up more of the stuff because uh, it seemed, but would be also internationally would be like better because. But, it, it but the jokes. show does air in Italy. I can't pronounce or remember how to say the title, but I I I wonder what kind of creature he's considered to be in Italy or something like yeah. that. Uh, but it's like it is like a sensual. Uh, you know, it it like the it launched. Uh, the first place it launched was on ITV in the UK on CITV, and it's been kind of a, a I guess big Anglo territory. It's been a, a kind of a hit for them, uh, but it is in Italy. It's playing in French and Belgium. Uh, it's a, actually quite a. It's a. It's doing really well for the uh, Cartoon Network Africa, mm-hmm. but it, uh, it's just in English there. Um, Has that been the like the geographical journey of the show before? Uh um, before Carrie in Canada, yeah, yeah. Uh, where else is it? Well, it's going to be coming out in Australia soon. Uh, it's going to just sold it to Russia and the Ukraine, um, and you know, sort of rolling out slowly everywhere. When we show first came out, I kind of wanted, like, you know, like we all watch Netflix, and we all kind of thought about this big international everywhere at once release, and that didn't happen. I was like, oh, it's kind of terrible. But then. Uh, it actually, I think it's like a good thing in, in this world that we live in because people are finding out about shows constantly. So it helped our Canadian release because um, we already have this fan base in the UK and Africa. Uh, and there's also the social media uh, already there. So when you go look for, for Wishfart, there's actually uh, there is an existence of Wishfart um, on the Internet. Is there a Russian versioning for the show then? Is there it's going to be, done? yeah, it'll be done in Russian and Ukrainian. I really want, I want to hear that. Movie. I really want to I hear that. Yeah, I can't that wait. Would be <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah. And they're putting on an adult network in Russia, not like a, not like a, an adult network, but like <laughs> a grown-up network. A grown-up network for the big morning. kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I forgot. I thought there was something else, uh, sir. Uh, so my question is kind of two-part, uh, and it's both in regards to aging down. You guys said you had to do. I, I mean, it worked out because I think you said it slowly aged its way back up. 
Um, but when you're aging something down, do you have to have to go to the bare bones? Do you have to go and, and change the plot or anything like that? Or is it just tone and language that you have to address? And then the second part is... answer that right away. You just change the header that says instead of 6 to 11, you just change it to like 5 to 10 or <laughs> 7 to 12. And then the, the second part is, is if they were to ask you guys to age it down and to hit a target market that you kind of disagreed with or, or you hadn't envisioned uh, from day one, is that something that you guys would have put your foot down on, or, or what would your stance have been there if you actually disagreed with post green light or pre green light? <laughs> no, pre. That's like had, had it depended. I mean, it's a great question. I I think that the show wouldn't really work for a much younger audience um, the way we'd envisioned it. So it would have been an, another show. I mean, I suppose if someone was saying to us, "We'll give you a green light if you do this," but younger, maybe we would have reimagined the show. But it would have been a totally different journey because we. Like the the reason this is so special for us is that we got to make the show we wanted to make. So I mean I don't know what we would have done had they wanted like I, it wouldn't work as a preschool show. No, but when no, we but did when when we did originally age it down a bit, it, I think it's more um, it is more tone. Like I don't feel that the stories were ever. Um, I mean they they have a complexity which I think is for the older age group, and I think when you go younger, you have to sort of you know pare down the story a little bit to make it a bit simpler. Um, but at at its heart, I think the stories are pretty sort yeah. of simple to, yeah. to grasp. Part of it was like the kind of the aging of it was also just us kind of trying to find the perfect age for Des for ourselves. Like young enough so that he's kind of like... Uh, it's still a kids show, but if he gets if he gets too old, then he then he he starts the the kind of character he would be would be no maybe not a character it would be as the kind of character we wanted to write for the well, show. He would just be obsessed with girls. Exactly, and, like, it was like yeah. Yeah, I think that yeah the stories. I think the stories ultimately end up being. It is a tone thing. It's a tone thing, and 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 focus too. Uh, original is original incarnation. He was much more focused on girls. Uh, in the incarnation that the that was aged down, it was much less. It was quite a bit younger. Um, and then what it is is very close to what it was originally. Only he's much more about hanging out with his friends. There's a lot more freedom a lot of times when uh, the character doesn't have that kind of, you know, flirty. Yeah, sort of yeah. Motivation. I actually, I'm not very happy. It, it, yeah. we found the right spot for him. So. It is really hard when you're coming up with a show to figure out the the age of the characters and who you're targeting because I think as creators or storytellers or animators or you you know you you you're in love with an idea and like a and 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 it doesn't necessarily mean it's only for one age but you need to pin it down so it's kind of a struggle and it's kind of like and I was kind of joking about just changing the heading but not totally joking because <laughs> there there was kind of an, a bit of an infuriating thing going on where like the network was. They were like, we're aging things up. And then like literally talk like eight, six months, we're aging things down. Yeah. And then later on, it's like when we produce the show, it's like, well, it's a good thing it's this age because we're back up again. <laughs> it's like, that's great. Yeah, it's true. So it's, yeah, that's there's kind of a bit of that going on. Yeah. Uh, in the back in the middle there with the, with the, uh, the glasses. Great. Very curious. This person. Hi. Uh, another question for me. Um, I was <laughs> curious about the the fact that you made a animated, um, I guess, a teaser or proof of concept, fully animated. I think you mentioned that you had fifty thousand dollars from Telefilm uh, to do that. How did you get that, and was that even enough money at all? 
It's so not enough. Because uh, <laughs> uh, it, actually the money comes partly from the, the CMF. There's a development fund at the CMF, but it's triggered by a broadcaster. So basically Teletoon, when they said, yeah, we'll go into development, Teletoon committed 25000 and so CMF matched it. And it's funny because at the time, I told a friend who had been in the business for a while, I said, oh, we got development. So she, she was like, so you got like, I don't know, like 100, 150,000? <laughs> I was like, uh, no, we got 50,000. She said, well, you won't be able to do anything with that. You got to pay three scripts for that yeah. and then also do a bunch of other work. Yeah. So. And I mean, to give you an idea, I mean. We didn't pay ourselves for the scripts, though. Yeah. And th an idea of kind of like, I think at the end of the day, this isn't a trade secret, I think we gave. Uh, gave we paid Slap Happy a hundred like a hundred and ten thousand. And no, original, but originally, I'm just trying to give it a, a real value of the. I think, we, it, I think it cost yeah. about seventy. I think it cost about seventy to make. Yeah, but you know they you know wasn't their real cost. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you know, but they did it for like at the time it was a fraction. It was like twenty. 20 some thousand and because that's development like then so then later when we went into production then we paid ourselves for those scripts and we paid slap happy the remainder of what we owed them and then this bonus because we didn't end up going with them um so but yeah in development you can't do that much with fifty thousand. so you have to find people that want to you know also want to put in take a risk and right. make the investment and maybe they can do it as an in-kind um, whatever. Well, not that you're a charity or anything. Never mind. <laughs> I'm just curious about that. Well, at the time, I think that they were they were getting started as a studio. They were all professionals. They'd worked somewhere else, and they started their own studio. Um, and uh, you know, people do want to help uh, help people who have a fun yeah. project, and yeah. Uh, yeah. and you know, they were going to get paid. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess. Okay. Thank you. That, that's that's I think what you just said is a part that uh, that sometimes gets. Uh, overlooked or or uh, we forget about uh, on our end of things too is other people want to make stuff and uh, and if you can find uh, people who want to do something fun uh, the way you do and that there's a there is a light even if it's not at the end of the tunnel if it's not bright enough to light up the end of the tunnel but there's a light to turn on somewhere between now and the finished product yeah. somebody will will want to help you it's so true and it's back to the relationship thing because we met with many studios when we got the development money and when we met with slap happy it was like yes th this is these are our people and we all wanted to do it and they were equally passionate about it. It wasn't like, Oh, we're going to do it. like, so it just, it worked and it was because they yeah. were really excited to, yeah, probably to the, miss the missing part of the story is that we didn't work with slap happy at the end of the day, just because of, geography and tax credits and financing yeah, we, so they're yeah. amazing we just we couldn't because yeah, we couldn't. of the way the so, show was set up unfortunately i think we're about five minutes wrapping up so we can uh we can keep going with questions here unless other folks uh have uh i'll, I'll remember hey um you spoke about the kind of base episodic formula being that a wish is uh, granted and then kind of chaos ensues but then we saw an episode where a wish wasn't granted um so my question is sort of how do you kind of navigate feeling beholden to the formula of the show while also feeling free to sort of deviate from that formula? It's a great question. I think in the beginning of the show, you feel very beholden because this is what you have promised and this is what how you got your green light. But um, I think that things have changed a little bit too in terms of nobody really wants a super formulaic show anyway. So as soon as we all... Uh, as soon as our network executive and all of us, we all really understood our characters and loved them. You start seeing so many story possibilities that don't 
have to do with a wish and you you're far in enough that everyone's like yeah that's gonna work that's gonna be great and yeah it's almost like there were times when no one even realized there wasn't a wish in an episode because you just get excited about the idea i think at the end of the day we probably wrote more episodes without wishes without realizing it because we were picking some the other day yeah. of favorite favorite episodes that were like well should we show this one well that one doesn't have a wish should we show that one well that one doesn't have a wish well, that one you, comes you, at you the start end. to love your characters and know them and so you can see the potential of these other stories suddenly unfold whereas originally when you're selling the idea you really have to convince someone that this is going to work and we can make a million episodes and it's going to be a wish every time it also depends on the genre like i think six to eleven comedy that will happen that you might have a you know a, a, a formula or a premise that then you can deviate from but if you're doing like you know a preschool show you're not going to suddenly start doing something different so That's it was also just the type of show it was yeah and i find that uh it's also kind of a development not not necessarily in this uh, you, you kind of had your own schedule here but we're all used to really short development periods at least in the, the the amount of the period in which we're working on something and you're trying to drill down on what the show is and then it, yeah. when you go out to sell it it's it's about that thing and then eventually it's kind of odd that this happens a lot but it really does after you've been making your show for a little while you realize oh but it's this though it can also be this other yeah movie, you know? yeah yeah because i i love the characters more completely now and you can yeah. you just find more things to do and then everyone as they they kind of like you have that proof of that extended proof of concept um i've found that uh people get more they're more willing to trust something that wasn't in the brief you know and then yes exactly yeah, yeah because it's suddenly is a thing and you can it's see so this true. there yeah well, recently we were developing a Bible for a show that wasn't our show, but uh, and the, the producers were basically asking us, uh, along with the springboards, they're asking us, well, pitch us a bunch of atypical episodes, which I thought that was interesting. Oh, yeah, it was, so they were specifically asking for those atypical episodes, and, well, but Bible. for the Bible, and it was a 6 to 11 comedy as well. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Corey, Corey again. Corey was the assistant director on Wish Park, by the way. And he he we even have a character called Manticore in Wishfart. <laughs> looks like one. a huge monster fan, which yeah, uh, which I also know. So the, so the huge monster fan. Manticore is something I want to see. <laughs> um, well, you had these characters in your head for so long while developing it. How did it change when you actually heard them speak? You cast voice actors. Did it amazing. I mean, I think we did a great job with the scripts, but then with the cast that we had, it was like okay, this like. They are elevating this to a whole other level. Like I, I just the way that um, our lead actors kind of fell into their roles and assumed them and then made them better and nuanced them. It was just my favorite part of the process. Well, yeah, because when you're making a cartoon and uh, you're still writing while it's in going in production, like later episodes are already uh, finished. I mean, early episodes are finished and you're recording them. Other ones are still being written, and so you start. You do start writing to the uh, abilities and the talents of your actors. And they bring a lot of enor such enormous energy to it that yeah. uh, you can't kind of, couldn't have imagined. Who uh, so. who are your cast? Well, Puffin's played by Sergio DiZio. He's great. great. Yeah. Sergio is fantastic. Sergio is yeah. amazing. Is he, he's in Flashpoint? Is that yeah, he's yeah. in Flashpoint. Yeah. And um, Daz is played, um, sorry, Des is played by Mac, Mac Haywood. Mac Haywood. And uh, Mac is like this just uh, 
he's an astounding talent who can basically do anything. He basically he the, has done, um, I don't know how many voices on which He does, does he, but he also does the all the weird voices for the seal baby thing. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He's yeah. done so many voices on the show. He's, he's incredible. And he, it was amazing working with him because he really loves, he really loves Des. He really identifies with Des and he, he felt like this was the closest character to who he feels he is. And so it was very, it was really an intimate, great thing working with them. And then and Stephanie Saki uh, plays Akiko and is like, again, just took the role and I mean she did amazing things she added all these like she she's Japanese she would add all these Japanese expressions and and kind of just fill out she filled out the character and she became her and it was like amazing to watch her yeah. being Akiko like really the voice records I, I could go on about them forever because yeah. they were the best part of and the then, process um, for me Fireball Cat is the uh, voice by Martin Roach who has this just amazing kind of velvety kind of he would come in and just voice. record his lines in like 10 minutes and, and then he like you would do one take and be like, yep, that's it. We All right. A second, just to get a safety. And we're like, okay, bye. And Martin is often cast uh, kind of against against type right. in some ways like this as well. We uh, worked with him on a, on a cartoon once where his character was the name of uh, uh, Princess Pony A-Pans, where she was part pony and half, you know, giant uh, gorilla. So we would have Martin, like, have a bunch of, like, uh, tea parties and things like that as a, as a screaming kind of lunatic and... Just a ton like, of fun. I mean, at every level of the process, like, you know, it transforms, especially as writers, we don't draw, you know, so the first transformation is those Ameri other first character drawings and stuff like that. And then it's kind of like, then they start to get animated in that. But I think the actors kind of take on an emotional level, an emotional connection with the characters that even like as a writer, I'm like, wow, that's like, like that's when the character kind of comes to life because this person, this real person, is now yeah. emotionally so involved with this character. It's kind it of is like real. it's like you spend so much time on the minutia when you're making a cartoon and writing a cartoon, uh, where you're just involved so much on like the line and the word level, and then the lines and the uh, animation. It's like hearing. I had the similar experience with animation with the anim seeing the animation as well, where it's just like hearing the actors perform a run that just works exceptionally well and they're doing it and they're in it and they're making it alive. I'm like, wow, this is a real thing. These are like really real people. Same thing when I watch certain scenes where I'm like, I'll be so busy normally just like watching and watching and then I'll just be transported by the story and I'm like, oh, this is like a real cartoon. This is a real cartoon. It changes the writing too, the the way the, the actor can... Uh perform the character you start yeah. to oh, yeah, yeah. yeah change the character's wheelhouse and even there it, it must have been great um uh the rare occasion i've been able to watch recording sessions has been remarkably informative as well i don't know what your experience was like uh watching the way a character the way an actor physically emotes can also change the realization I, I think you learn so much. Like as a writer, if you can go to some voice records, or if you're, yeah, if you're working on any show, ask if you can go to a voice recorder too, because you will learn so invaluable. much about how to write a line that then an actor may change or not change, but just how they embody that. The, In this episode, words. the uh, Jigmaster episode, we had uh, on the right during the writing, we had a lot of conversations whether to have Akiko and uh, Puffin take have Irish accents when they become brainwashed. Um, and I think we had originally decided we weren't going to, but then we asked them to do it in the booth, or maybe they just did it. Yeah. And it was I was killing myself. I was like, yeah, definitely, they have to do bad Irish accents <laughs> throughout. I was like, we should have written more scenes with them doing it. Do we have uh, any other questions? Well, perfect timing. It appears like uh, that's thirsty. it. I will. Uh, I'll make one final request of all of you to sort of. Uh, encourage people right now so say something nice to folks and 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 encourage everybody we don't uh how many just i didn't even ask this question how many of you are uh 
How many how many of you consider yourself writers? Never mind uh, how many have worked on something or whatever. Okay, great. We don't hear a few of you. nice things about ourselves a lot. So, and uh, we're not always told to, you know, we're not always encouraged. So, if you uh, and this is if I haven't made this clear, and I spent a lot of time on the talk talking about this, this is atypical what uh, what these folks did with the show. Um, so, I think it would be really great if you could. Uh, just anything you think of, or if it if it needs to be blindingly sarcastic, that's fine too. Um. Well, like I was saying before, I think that it's like uh, if there's something you if you want to do it, like it can it can happen. It can it can happen. It can happen. Yeah, there's a lot of luck, there's a lot of hard work, but it can happen. And so, like, keep working on the script that you love. And keep talking to people and don't be worried about the things you don't know how to do or the people you don't know because there's people there who can help you. And, and, uh, and everyone wants to see something happen. So uh, keep, like, keep hitting away at it, man. Yeah, of course. I think like, you know, if you have an idea, just be to believe in yourself. And I think that one of the main things I learned is this idea for me, it's sort of weird, but just to commit to your ideas, I guess, because I think as writers, we, it's hard. You're by yourself a lot and you're writing and you're questioning and you've got this inner critic and then you're reading what you wrote and you're like, that, that sucks. And you want to change it all. But I think that rather than doing that, if you, if you know there's something that you really want to do that you want to create in your heart, then you just, you commit to that. And even if some days it feels like it sucks, don't change your idea. Because I think for a long time, one of the reasons we didn't pitch our own shows is because we we're like come up with something and then change it and then keep changing it and I think commitment is so, such a big factor in finding your creative vision as well like you'll do another show about that other thing another time like to pick the thing you're gonna do and and really give it everything and focus on it I think I think that's what we did with Wish Art. and if I knew what I had to do to get to where I am now I would not have done it so <laughs> stay dumb stay, stay idealistic dumb, also, thank everybody for coming and listening to us yeah, talk thanks. about a TV show. Yeah. That, and thank you for asking us such nice questions. Yeah, no, very nice. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. This has been uh, Writers Talking Television, and uh, this was Wish Fart. Thanks very much for and coming. Follow us on social media. We do good social media. And if you get television, watch us. Spons 10 o'clock on, on 1030 on Saturday mornings. Yeah. Go thank wish you. for things. Thank thanks. you. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Writers Talking TV, presented by the Writers Guild of Canada. All the podcasts in this series can be found on the Writers Guild website, wgc.ca, and at iTunes. Thanks to the team at Tiff Bell Lightbox and to our technical producer, Devin Robbins. I'm Mike Kiss, Talking TV. Thanks for listening, TV.